Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, how close are we to a potential expanded conflict because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Russia is saying it's a NATO war by proxy. Thomas Hughes is with the Center for International and Defense Policy at Queen's University, and he has some insights. A report from Stats Canada says the border blockades earlier this year didn't have as much of a negative impact on trade as we feared. We find out more from Stuart True at the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. He's a researcher and director of the Center's Trade and Investment Research Project. And why is it that fear or other negative emotions seem to be key drivers for voter turnout? We'll examine that with Oksana Kischuk, who's Director of Strategy and Insights at Abacus Data. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There has been some saber-rattling by Russia using the threat of a third world war and warning shots in some cases to get the world to back off after the invasion of Ukraine. The Russian military intensified its attacks on the last holdouts in the Ukrainian port city of Mariupol, while UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres reached an agreement, in principle at least, with Vladimir Putin to evacuate civilians. We get more on this from Tim McGuire. Officials in Mariupol battered by Russian bombs, missiles, and tanks since the beginning of the war say the Russians hit a giant steel plant with some 35 airstrikes on the day United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres met with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Guterres saying after the meeting both Russia and Ukraine need to work together to get the civilians out of the plant and the city. To enable the safe evacuation of those civilians who want to leave, both inside the Azovstal plant and in the city, in any direction they choose, and to deliver the humanitarian aid required. An estimated 2,000 Ukrainian troops and about 1,000 civilians have been inside the plant for weeks. The UN leader is to meet with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky on Thursday. I'm Tim McGuire. NATO allies met yesterday to consolidate military support for Ukraine, but the threat of it becoming a wider conflict brings with it the threat of an escalation into the possible use of nuclear weapons. Thomas Hughes is a postdoctoral fellow in the Center for International and Defense Policy at Queen's University. Uh, Thank you for joining us this morning. No problem at all, Shona. Good to speak to you. And to you, was this intensification by NATO in support of Ukraine inevitable? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, the conversations are ongoing um, all the time. Um, all the time they're talking about what the situation is in Ukraine and what Ukraine requires. I think one of the things that we've seen come through very clearly in the, in the last few weeks is that, that um, NATO members uh, and other countries have been very responsive to Ukrainian requests. This is not a case of uh, NATO countries giving what they want to give to Ukraine and then Ukraine using it um, how they how they feel is appropriate. It is Ukraine coming to to these countries and saying, look, we need X, Y, or Z equipment in order to accomplish this. Can you provide? And if you can't provide that, what else can you provide? So, um, those sorts of conversations uh, are, are ongoing. One of the really important things about this, uh, I think, though, is that it's uh, a very obvious further statement uh, that the West, for want of a better term, is still. Um, fully in support of Ukraine and is still fully committed to providing Ukraine with the support that it, it is requesting. Uh, I think we said at the very outset of, of this conflict, one of the challenges for, for NATO is going to be maintaining that united front as the situation on the ground uh, starts to shift. And that is still ongoing. I think we, we saw on the BBC News website this morning conversations around um, what, what will happen to Western unity as the, as the conflict continues. Uh, and those questions are really, really important for us to, to, to keep thinking about. What do we want to see from the end of this conflict? Does that accord with what Ukraine uh, wants from the end of this conflict? How far are we prepared to go uh, to accomplish what Ukraine wants from the end of this conflict? But maintaining that uh, appearance of continued conversation and continued support and unity for Ukraine is is hugely significant. So I think that that is uh, an aspect of, of the, the conversation that shouldn't be set aside. Well, it's troubling to hear um, the Kremlin spokesperson, basically, Sergei Lavrov, saying mm-hmm. things like this is a de facto war with NATO. It's a war by proxy using Ukraine. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It is it is tremendously concerning. And the, the, the reality that we, again, have to keep in mind here is that uh, for all Russia's conventional conflict uh, capability 
challenges that we've seen in Ukraine. They have not been able to accomplish the objectives that they set out to accomplish. They are still a nuclear power. They do still have that nuclear capability. I think the uh, narrative that's come out from um, the US and, and others that they're concerned about this saber rattling is important uh, to understand that, that how it's being perceived at the moment is that this is again uh, an attempt by Russia to um, make NATO uh, and, and other countries step back from its support. But I think it is also the case that there is an awareness of the realistic nature of, of this threat. Uh, the, this destructive reality of nuclear weapons means quite simply that we, we can't take such statements uh, lightly. That said, I think, uh, as, I, as I just mentioned, this idea about saber rattling suggests that there is an interpretation here that, that Russia understands the challenges that it is facing and it's really simply a, a, an acknowledgement that it hasn't been able to achieve what it's wanted to achieve. And there's not an expectation at this point, certainly to the best of my knowledge, that, that Russia will be using those, those nuclear weapons. And again, I think it's really important to state that uh, we have not seen Russia seemingly being willing to escalate this conflict by launching weapons at a NATO member state. Um, they've, they've continued to threaten this sort of action, but they haven't, they haven't taken it. And I think that is extremely important. This conversation that Russia is having around the, the, the idea of a, a third world war is really interesting. I think uh, one could all, almost look at the conflict at the moment and say, well, is this not a world war in itself? We have already seen a, a huge number of countries being impacted by this this crisis um, and this conflict whether or not that whether that's just uh, in relation to russian gas and oil supplies um let alone the the, the fighting on the ground um we are already seeing a, a significant spread uh of of impacts but it's also difficult to see how uh, a large number of other countries would get involved on the ground in in ukraine and the idea of seeing a, a, a world war in this sense, in the same way that we saw the First and Second World War, seems a little bit far-fetched. So the terminology around world war does feel like it's that sort of saber-rattling, escalatory uh, language, rather than a realistic appraisal of the next phase of the conflict. Well, under the heading of uh, in uh, you know inflated language and mm -hmm. uh, and comments of concern, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said this week that the U.S. wants to see Russia weaken to the degree that it can't do the kinds of things we've seen, like invading Ukraine. Yeah, that's that's that. a pretty direct threat. <laughs> it really it, it is, and uh, frankly, I was a little bit surprised to see that sort of language used. I think it, it provides something of an interesting indication of, again, that, that discussion around what happens next. And the, the really important part here is that we do think about what do we want to see, what end state do we want to see at the end of this conflict? It's not simply that uh, Ukraine remains independent from Russian direct control. That's phase one. Okay, if we can accomplish that along with Ukraine, of course, Ukraine's doing the the, the vast majority of the work there. If that can be accomplished, wonderful. But what do we do next? And that statement uh, really does stress, uh, I, I think, the, the potential for this to, to continue as a conflict for much longer. I do wonder if, again, we could potentially interpret this as uh, US saber rattling, if you like. This is an attempt to say to Russia, uh, you need to cut your losses now. Because if you continue to do this, then um, you will be considerably weaker in the future. However, I think the phrasing, as you suggested before, was was very direct. Uh, and I'm interested to see how that uh, that language is reinterpreted in the coming weeks. Well, I think, you know, the fact that, well, I mean, this really started with the um, annexation of Crimea, of course. But um, in looking at this, I, I think perhaps the fact that Putin has... Uh, done this, has invaded mm -hmm. Ukraine, there are now the, the, you know, there's a dance that goes on here. And I, I don't want to make light of it by saying it's a dance. But there's, you know, I mean, we're throwing this out there, we're going to see how Putin reacts mm -hmm. to that. There has to be some sort of discussion going on if if Putin has made it clear that he is at least entertaining with mm -hmm. a threat of nuclear weapons, 
the rest of the world, I mean, he's talked about a limited nuclear strike. There is no such thing. No, absolutely. No, I, I completely agree with you. And your, your point about the dance is, is uh, I think, very, very well taken. It's, and it's, it's also very easy, if we're not careful, to slip into um, understanding this particular aspect of the conflict, like the, the game of chess. And, and we see it in those sorts of terms. And that, that is unhelpful. But you're absolutely right. It is, um, it is a form of, of dance. It is a form of trying to indicate your intent and capability without having to manifest that intent and demonstrate your capability. And that is always a huge challenge, uh, to try and um, say what you are willing to do uh, and have the other side uh, also understand that you are actually willing to do that that, uh, that thing or, or take that action. Uh, and it's, it's hard to know whether they have accepted it or not. The, the escalation of words is a part of a conflict that... that I think it was entirely expected here. And um, so the next phase is going to be working out um, just how far we actually believe that, that Russia is, is willing to go uh, in this stage. I think you're, you're absolutely right about the concept of a, a limited nuclear strike. And we can certainly talk about the, the, uh, the, the size of a nuclear weapon that, that's used. But the reality is that if um, a nuclear weapon is used. That is going to take this conflict to a completely different point. Uh, and I think it would be very difficult to see how that would not then uh, further escalate. But by the same token, it is very, it's also very difficult to see how a conflict that does escalate further ultimately benefits Russia. Uh, I, I think if the full military capability is pointed at Russia, it is going to cause catastrophic damage in Russia. And that brings us back to the, the, the Cold War conversation uh, around um, would the United States, for example, be prepared to uh, lose Chicago to a nuclear strike in order to support one of its European allies. Uh, and the United States has to be very resolute in, in demonstrating that it is willing to support those European allies, even in the face of this nuclear threat from Russia. We only have a few minutes left, uh, and there's certainly a lot that we could cover in this conversation. But one of the things that worries me, and I think worries a lot of people, is that we're 65, roughly 65 days into this conflict. We were all told in the beginning that Putin really felt that this was going to be maybe a week, roll into Kiev, take it over. It's a done deal. That hasn't happened. What worries me is a desperate Putin. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, I, I think that... That desperation um, can cause people to take decisions which um, don't always appear to be uh, particularly rational in the sense that they, they are of uh, high-risk activities. I think that said, um, the, the question also arises uh, around what Putin uh, still believes that he can get out of this conflict, what, what he can um, maintain and frame as a victory. Uh, and that is going to be uh, really very important uh, for Putin. It is also difficult to know what information Putin is ultimately being given uh, by those around him. Uh, and it's it would be extremely helpful, and I'm sure this works is is going on, to understand what Russia believes is the current trajectory of the conflict, uh, because it's from there that we can perhaps derive some understanding of, of the degree of desperation. Um, putting together both that Russian military capability, how far it thinks it's going to be able to go, uh, and how that might align with more limited objectives that can be framed uh, as a success. And we've seen uh, this morning and last night Russia's decision to cut off um, gas to uh, Bulgaria and Poland. Uh, that is, again, a new phase of the, of the conflict and does suggest uh, a degree, I wouldn't necessarily say of desperation, but it is uh, fundamentally confirming uh, Russia's uh, move away from uh, the sale of gas uh, as its primary uh, import, sorry, as its primary financial, um, the, the, the emphasis, sorry, let me rephrase that, but the emphasis of um, on oil and gas sales to Europe as uh, the central aspect of, of Russia's economy. It's signaling that it, it might be able to move away from that and still be successful. Uh, and that, again, is a, is a real change uh, in the, the dynamics of the conflict between Russia and Europe uh, and North America more broadly.
I'm wondering if Putin is feeling the pressure of May Day coming up, and then there's the anniversary of uh, victory in Europe mm-hmm. on May the 9th. So it's a great question. And the, the idea here of, of pressure is also an interesting one. Uh, I would suggest that from our perspective, from the outside, that it is perhaps seems more likely than um, it, it's, that, that he is under pressure than it is within Putin's sort of inner circle, if you like. Because uh, the narrative within Russia, from what we can make out, still maintains that, that Russia is um, being at least relatively successful in this conflict, that it is making gains, that, that Ukraine is um, weak and that Russian forces are still powerful. So whilst I think that there is pressure to um, achieve something tangible uh, to uh, lord on the 9th of May, I don't think necessarily that the 9th of May is a, uh, a the be-all and end-all uh, of this conflict. I think there is sufficient uh, for Putin to be able to um, still have a, a, a May Day celebration, 9th of May celebration, uh, which celebrates himself and the Russian military uh, without there being uh, a great deal of, of further success on the battlefield for Russia and Ukraine. Well, as this continues to unfold, no doubt we will have opportunities for further discussion. So I appreciate your time. Oh, not at all. Thank you very much for having me. Thomas Hughes is a postdoctoral fellow with the Center for International Defense Policy at Queen's University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Have to admit, I was a little bit surprised when I read the report from Stats Canada that the border blockades earlier this year didn't have exactly the impact on trade as was feared. Here's Global's David Aiken. When the Ambassador Bridge connecting Windsor and Detroit was shut by protesters, Canadians worried about a huge economic hit. The blockade of the Ambassador Bridge has affected about $390 million in trade each day. The blockade may have affected that trade, but it does not appear to have stopped it. Cross-border trade data recently released by Statistics Canada shows that shippers found a way around the blockade. This graph shows the number of Ontario U.S. truck crossings in February, and sure enough, truck crossings at the Ambassador Bridge ceased for the six-day-long blockade. But this line shows truck crossings at all other Ontario USA crossings, and it's clear trucking operators quickly rerouted to other bridges. What I was a little surprised by was that we didn't see an effect even for the um, perishable goods, the um, you know, food, fresh food, fresh vegetables, which was really an area of concern. As to the fears at the time that the blockades would cause long-lasting harm to the Canada-U.S. trading relationship, well, this auto industry analyst, he's not concerned. U.S. and Canada are going to remain strong for, for the near future at the very least. I mean, again, it's it's 30 years of progress on, on integrating new supply chains. It's, I don't think, going to be undone by, by one week on the Ambassador Bridge. Still, the public safety minister will make the case that the blockades caused Canadians to suffer. I would just really draw a bright line between statistics and what Canadians were experiencing at the border to say nothing of the fact that um, here in the nation's capital, uh, the community here was uh, laid to siege as a result of uh, the occupation. Conservatives say the trade data cannot be ignored. I think it undermines a lot of the government's arguments in relation to the justification for imposing the Emergencies Act. That trade data is going to get lots of scrutiny, and not just from this special joint committee of MPs and senators, but also from the judge heading the public inquiry into the Emergencies Act. And that inquiry gets underway later this year. David Aiken, Global News, Ottawa. Joining us now is Stuart True with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. He's a researcher and director of the Centre's Trade and Investment Research Project. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Shona. Were you surprised by the report yesterday from StatsCan? Yeah, I, I suppose I was surprised. I, first of all, I should say I think the minister makes a good point about you know the impact uh, of of these blockades being kind of bigger picture than maybe the, the the direct trade impacts, the statistical impacts. I live in Ottawa, and I can say the impacts in the city were were quite severe. Um, so I take that point. But but it was a relief to know that the protests at the border didn't have as as big an impact on Canada U.S. trade as you know, some people suspected. I mean, obviously, there was the potential for a much bigger disruption to, to auto trade, food trade. And we saw some auto plants slowing down production due, due to a lack of parts, for example. But uh, but uh, yeah, I think it was uh, surprising and, and a bit of a relief. 
But what does this do to Canada's uh, image in the world? Because, you know, we're always sort of depicted as the nice kid brother, you know, the safe place that you can go. Uh, but it, it certainly shows up some vulnerabilities. If you're looking to maybe take advantage of a lower Canadian dollar versus the U.S. greenback, but, you know, send your goods to the U.S. market over one of those bridges, there's a question mark now. Well, I, I think I think there is. I think that's kind of a long-standing concern um, of, a, of a lot of Ontario manufacturing. And I think over the long term, even though we've seen declines uh, in manufacturing here in the province, as, as other countries have seen, um, you know, as, as we heard in that last segment, um, there are a lot of strong fundamentals in the province, right? I mean, we have, uh, and I think importantly, we have some of the lowest carbon uh, based energy, for example. So as, as supply chains look to go green, right, to reduce their emissions, um, you know, having hydro and, you know, and, and nuclear even um, powering your manufacturing sector versus, say, coal, as we see much more in the United States, Mexico and China, um, that's going to be an advantage. So so on the one hand, I think, I think fair enough, but I think we've seen in the past few weeks even that, that, that Ontario is able still to attract manufacturing, for example, in, in electronic batteries, uh, we've seen some new investment in clean steel production in Defasco, at the Defasco plant, um, and, and that's going to pay off, right, in the long run. So I, I don't think we should be too worried that we're going to see a mass exodus of future investment. Also, the plants that are already there, they're, they're not easy to move, right? I mean, a lot of these plants, uh, there's billions invested in them, so it's not going to be super easy for, say, an auto company to just shift uh, a line of, of production across the border. Um, on the other hand, I think we've seen, you know, as, as the statistics show, uh, even this disruption was manageable, right? I mean, companies had plans uh, and they improvised. I mean, GM was flying in parts when they couldn't get over the Ambassador Bridge, for example. There's cost to that, but it, it's it's manageable in the short term. And uh, and we have other crossings, right? I mean, we, this, this this study shows clearly that the trucks rerouted and they were coming in through Sarnia versus versus Windsor. Uh, and the same was true in the prairies, actually, once, once uh, officials were able to help the trucks reroute. So, you know, they don't call it the longest undefended border in the world for nothing, right? I mean, there's there's many more places to get across the border than just that one bridge. Well, yes, I mean, just Niagara alone, there's what, four bridges? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. One of the sectors we heard a lot about, and it was mentioned in that report off the top, uh, was perishable goods. Um, in particular, if fruits and vegetables don't get delivered in a timely manner, they're going to have to be dumped. So how was that factored into this report? Well, it's, it was hard for me to tell exactly from the report, you know, uh, where those shipments went. Um, we do know a lot of the traffic that was destined for the Ambassador Bridge, for example, simply went through Sarnia. Um, and it, it was, you know, added a bit of time, a bit of hassle for the drivers, but otherwise probably got to shelves with not too much of a delay. Um, you know, delays are always kind of built into um, supply chains to some extent as well, although I, I do appreciate that in, in perishable goods, uh, it is much more of a just-in-time situation. Um, there was some, a lot of media coverage of, say, in the, in the prairies in Alberta, there were issues with getting cows across the border, uh, like literally getting the cows across uh, to be, to be uh, slaughtered in the United States. Um, and so that aspect of the food trade was was impacted, I think, much more so than the other sectors. Fruits and vegetables, from what I can tell, uh, simply other ways into the country during the blockade. Well, you know, when you're talking about getting uh, cattle to uh, to market, as it were, down in the States, can't you switch to either train delivery or the good old-fashioned cattle drive? Yeah. <laughs> well, you're talking to a uh, you're talking to a vegetarian here, so I'm not sure. <laughs> I beg your pardon. <laughs> I, I'm not super worried about how people how people get the the meat, but I but I do respect that uh, that the industry it was hit in this respect. I mean, you know, if if one of our partners in in the trade work that we do, the National Farmers, um, you know, they'll frequently say, well, this is maybe a wake up call that we should be thinking about processing uh, slaughtering in Canada uh, and and for the Canadian market. I mean, half of what we grow, right, in terms of half of the, the cows that we raise are destined for export, right? So this, if you think about shifting to a more sustainable uh, local-based food system, you know, you're, you're, you're maybe producing less, but you're also slaughtering it here in Canada, and that's going to have uh, you know, benefits all around, I think, for, for farmers and for, uh, for the environment as well. Yeah, when I was asking about perishable goods, in particular fruits mm-hmm. and vegetables, um, 
you know, and you were talking about how they would take a wider berth to get around the blockade area. They could take uh, uh, the Sarnia Bridge or, the, or they could come through Peace Bridge or uh, uh, the Queenston-Lewiston Bridge in Niagara to still get to the major markets there. There's still going to be some spoilage in effect, uh, but that won't be tallied until later on in the supply chain. Because, uh, you know, somebody who's hauling those goods, it's not up to him to decide whether something has spoiled in transit. He's contracted to take this trailer from this point to that point. Yeah, and, and this is a sector I, I must say I'm not uh, super familiar with how many of the trucks are refrigerated, for example. Uh, I'm sure for, for, this, for the perishable produce, uh, that would be the case, uh, that, that there would be some refrigeration along the route. So I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how extensive that is, though. But I, I would just say that, again, the stats seem to suggest that, uh, you know, this was not the kind of major uh, problem, even in the food sector, that, that we suspected it could have been. And again, I, I want to say, you know, had it gone on any longer, <laughs> that, that would have changed. Um, so the question is, you know, do we plan for this kind of thing to happen again? Uh, and how do we plan to do that? I'm not sure I have the answers to those questions. I mean, uh, this was so far, in hindsight, a bit of a, a fluke occurrence, right? Um, uh, and and I, I would say the protesters, the blockaders, probably exhausted quite a bit of the goodwill they were hoping to um, uh, to gain uh, in, in doing this action, especially in border communities. So, you know, should we be planning for this kind of thing in the future? You know, probably. But should we expect it? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would expect another similar action in in the near future. On the topic of having spent your goodwill capital, um, there's a Freedom Convoy coming to Ottawa this weekend. <laughs> Don't remind me. <laughs> yeah, uh, will, yeah, will there be there, anybody in Ottawa this time. weekend or is everybody going to leave because of what happened the last time? Well, you know, it's it's a good question. I don't want to make too light of it because, I mean, for the people of uh, downtown, this was a real nightmare uh, for weeks. Um, you know, at least they seem to be coming on bikes this time, right? So, you know, uh, <laughs> maybe that's small relief for the for people. But, yeah, it, it's it's a problem, um, and it's not one I have a good answer on, on how to deal with. But, yeah, they're coming. Uh, the streets are already fairly dead. I mean, this is we're still in the middle of a, of a pandemic, and, and so Ottawa is quite a bit different than it was, uh, you know, two years ago. Um, so will people be around? Probably not. Maybe a few people will come and see what's going on, but I, I doubt it'll make a, a huge impact. Well, on the downside of this, though, uh, and further to what you were saying just a couple of minutes ago, they may have spent a lot of their uh, their goodwill capital having done this. But it also shows that a relatively small group of protesters, um, even though there were, you know, a number of different locations across the country where these blockades were happening all at the same time, but a relatively small group can have a pretty big impact. And doesn't that just embolden either this group again or another group? Well, yeah, you know, it's it's an open question, I suppose. We'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens. Um, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think we do have to, to distinguish uh, in some ways um, between this action. This is not something that happens off, often in Canada, right? This was a very rare occurrence, um, um, something that we need to plan for, definitely. But, you know, I, I don't know. I don't want to predict the future uh, on whether more we're going to see more of these kinds of disruptions. I, I think the industry, honestly, to, has much bigger problems to think about, you know, from the ongoing supply bottlenecks across supply chains, right? I mean, shipping freight, shipping rates sky high, oil prices remain high. Uh, these are these are the real economic questions, right, for, for manufacturers and, and other producers in Canada. Uh, I think actually the, the blockade is, is small potatoes, right, uh, compared to some of those bigger questions, um, which is <laughs> which is you know worrying in itself. But that's at least at least that's my perspective is that there's bigger bigger issues here than, than a small group of noisy protesters. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I was seeing a report the other day with regards to the bottleneck in Shanghai and the number of ships that are just floating out there because Shanghai is in lockdown again and a very severe lockdown. Well, exactly. Uh, and, and this is, you know, this is the story, right, of, of 2001 and continuing to 2002. It's just, uh, it's just ongoing <laughs> disruptions rolling into each other, right, and affecting the, uh, the delivery of goods uh, across supply chains. Companies are, you know, preparing now at this point. There's, there's more use of, say, stockpiling by firms so that they don't have to rely on this just-in-time 
shipments of parts and other inputs that they need, cement or whatever, glass that they need to produce things uh, and, and build uh, infrastructure. So there is, you know, there's shifts happening. Um, and I think what we're seeing now is a bit of, uh, is, is an overall shift to say a little bit more onshoring of production. So we may see some companies coming back to North America that had previously gone uh, overseas to China and other parts of Asia, uh, a bit more, uh, bit more uh, warehousing of parts um, within Ontario factories, so that so that the disruptions, even border disruptions, don't become uh, as big a deal as as perhaps they could have become. And again, the transition, very important transition to clean energy. Right, I mean, we have to decarbonize, and that's going to require major shifts in how we make things, the power that we use to produce those things. Uh, uh, and these are all going to come with disruptions that that need to be managed uh, uh, going in going on. So, like we are in a very like like you said, we're in a very strange, uh, odd feeling period. But things will kind of recalibrate, I think, uh, over the long term, and in ways that potentially benefit um, Ontario manufacturing quite a bit uh, in terms of proximity to the United States and an emphasis on on clean clean manufacturing and clean power. Well, actually, uh, we're going to be getting into uh, the manufacturing of the raw materials that go into a lot of uh, things like electric vehicles a little bit later on on the show this morning. But you mentioned just-in-time delivery a few times and the fact that, well, we might be doing a little bit more stockpiling in the future because of not only what happened with the border blockades, but of course the supply chain issues that I think we're all really familiar with now. Anybody who's tried to buy a car in the last little while uh, may have run into some issues with that. Um, so I was also wondering about the big impact that was felt on the auto sector. I know you've touched on it a little bit in this interview, but I was hoping maybe we could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a huge story, right, especially for uh, Ontario communities with, um, you know, it's a huge industry for Ontario, hugely important, uh, integrated sector with the United States. Um, and but but, you know, you're right, but the major um, problems have been maybe not so much the blockade the blockade was an unpredictable or unexpected um, snag but the, the main problem was this supply chain shortage of um, chips right i mean there's hundreds of chips in, in the average car now um, and and there's competition between different sectors you know tech computers uh, and the auto sector for those chips right so what we really need to see is is that problem uh, sorted out and you know, from what I've seen from from reading the news, uh, GM, for example, seems to think um, that problem is going away quite soon uh, into this year. Uh, I've seen others suggesting it might go all the way through 2022, the lack of chips. And that really is going to stunt production in the auto sector in particular. So, you know, we can hope for and, and, and there has been a lot of investment in new production in the United States. There's been new investments from uh, from from, I believe, Hyundai and other and other companies there. New investments going in in India, uh, China, and, and other places. Uh, so you know, hopefully by the end of the year, that's that's relieved, and you know, our used used car prices go can start to come down because it is it is outrageous uh, how much uh, the cost of of transportation has spiked in this period. Yeah, even with the high cost of gasoline, it seems that uh, people, yeah. they, they still want to be driving out there. Stuart, we only have a couple of minutes left with you. And before we go, I thought the timing of this release from Stats Canada about uh, the moderate impact on trade that the uh, blockade seemed to have uh, coming at about the same time as the Emergencies Act inquiry uh, has been called. I mean, it was mandatory. The government had to do that within 60 days of uh, the end of the use of the Emergencies Act. But the, the two things together, um, it's kind of interesting. How do you think this yeah. report is going to be used uh, in, in terms of the Emergencies Act inquiry? Well, I think we've seen, and as the, as the segment before this, uh, our, our conversation kind of pointed out, I mean, it's, it's turned into a bit of a political football at this point. Right? I mean, StatsCan was, uh, was pointing out pretty much the facts on the ground, right, of how trade was impacted, and, and it's really going to be turned into a... Uh, uh, you know, it's going to come up again and again. I think in this inquiry, um, I, I think we should we should keep in mind. You know, this this report, as far as I understand, it came out earlier this this month. I think it was around April six or something. I saw the initial numbers, but the story itself uh, in Global was was really good at bringing out, uh, emphasizing the 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 impact that the blockade had or didn't have. Right. So, so you know, we're till we're looking at a few weeks afterwards after the StatsCan report that we see this inquiry called. 
I suspect it is going to come up again and again. Um, I think I think both sides make good points. You know, like I said, the minister makes a good point that that the impacts are still not clear from that data. Right? It's not entirely clear how every certain sector was affected. Uh, the impacts go beyond trade. Right? Um, this was a big disruption to people's lives. People who have to travel to and from the United States, independent of you know whether or not they're in a truck or not. I mean, there's a lot of people to get over there in their car. And this made a big impact on their lives and, and uh, as well in Ottawa, right? Just the massive disruption. So, you know, I, 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 I don't want to prejudge how, where this is going to go, uh, where the inquiry is going to go. But, but definitely these, these trade stats, I suspect they're going to be get tossed around quite a bit. And as the inquiry won't happen until later on this year, there is plenty of time for people to crunch the numbers. Uh, the different sides uh, that have uh, status in this or standing in this inquiry, they'll have plenty of time to crunch those numbers and put them to good use. Stuart, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Shona, thank you very much. Stuart True is with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. He's a researcher and director of the Association's Trade and Investment Research Project. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. For years in the States, if you've watched any of the elections down there, negative and fear-based ads abound. We've certainly seen that in the last five years anyway. We've started to see more of and more of that now in Canada. Perhaps the convoy-style protests are a part of that or have been caused by that. And we're on the cusp of a provincial election campaign in Ontario, so buckle up. It led me to wonder, why is it that negative emotions, fear in particular, seem to motivate voter turnout? Oksana Kishchuk is Director of Strategy and Insights at Abacus Data, so we're going to be asking her for her insights now. Good morning. How are you? I'm great, but I'm wondering, why? Like, are we hardwired to respond to fear and that's why it works so well? <laughs> I feel like this could be a, a whole psychology lesson if we really want to get into it and, and things like that. But I mean, I think that fear, um, I think the pandemic, if we want to kind of go back to that example, is a great sort of example of just how motivating fear and sort of negative emotions can be. And I think um, when it comes to politics, it's certainly a tactic that some people like to play on to kind of use that bit of psychology to their advantage. Yeah, it, like I've been going down to the states for years. I have family down there. Uh, they're in the never-ending election cycle, yes. it seems. <laughs> and and whenever I've watched uh, some of the programming from down there, it, you know, it is just attack ad after attack ad after. It. And some of them aren't true. You find out later yeah. that it was it, there's a maybe a nugget of truth in there, but most of it was just uh, glorified advertising. Um, but mm-hmm. but it seems to work. And what does that say about us as a species? <laughs> I mean, I, uh, definitely a lot of things. Um, but I do think it really taps into kind of emotions. And emotions are something that are, I think, really important um, things that drive uh, elections. I think as much as we like to think that elections are always based on policy issues and are based on kind of top issues that are coming to the forefront and things like that, it's, it's often our emotions and our emotions towards the issues, towards the leaders, towards kind of the state of the world that often are more likely to guide kind of the results of, of elections or, or voter turnout. I think um, a great example of that is kind of the 2015 election in Canada, where it was a change election, as, as many people like to call it, and it drew quite a bit of voter turnout. I think because of that sort of emotional pull um, that that there was a desire for something different, um, maybe beyond just policies, but beyond like a different leader, different sort of approach, that sort of thing. So I think emotions come into play uh, quite a bit more than we'd like to admit uh, when it comes to voting. Well, uh, Ipsos just did a poll. We had it in the news yesterday. Uh, and uh, according to this poll, the key issues to voters right now in Ontario would be health care, uh, mm-hmm. a clear map of COVID recovery and how that's going to help improve the uh, the finances of the individual uh, or the average Ontario household. Um, and that seems to be the case before the election is called. But that mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be what actually like policy doesn't get you into a voter booth. No, no. And I mean, healthcare and affordability are kind of dancing between kind of the top two issues um, now. And they have kind of done that dance for quite some time and on the federal level as well. And so I think um, certainly um, knowing that politicians can have some sort of impact on these issues is something that is great for conversation during elections and can kind of 
stir up the conversations. But again, it's it's not just about those issues. It's about um, whether or not you feel like there's a real need for change. It's about whether or not you feel like you're supporting the good guy, the good woman. Um, all of those things come into play a lot more than I think we'd like to admit. Well, one thing that really gets to bug me is the promise um, of the government going to do something, but you have to vote us back in first. Mm-hmm. And I think we've seen that just recently with a promise of a cut in, in provincial gas taxes, but it won't come into effect until July. Yes, I think that's another sort of um, emotional tactic, uh, maybe a little bit more policy based, but another sort of version of that that tactic. I think the provincial government this year has certainly um, done something strategically before the right before the election is called as well. So I think it it kind of goes both ways. But I think um that's another sort of great example where it isn't necessarily just about the policy, but it's about kind of that emotion or sort of fear or motivating tactic that comes along with policies when you're kind of in this election space. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to do this now is we're not officially in campaign mode. Mm-hmm. There's been a campaign yeah. that's been underway for yes. some time. <laughs> it's a great way of putting it. <laughs> but I was hoping that people might take this as an opportunity to maybe check their emotions and decide the reasons why they want to cast a ballot instead of, you know, being being played. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of a great moment, I think, as we're going into elections to sort of evaluate um, maybe what issues that you care about and, and what sort of, um, I mean, certainly policy plans and things like that aren't, aren't out yet, but kind of what issues do you care about? But I think... Um, to kind of people's credit, I think it's really hard to separate um, issues from emotions because a lot of the time the issues that you're voting on are things that are impacting your lives and, and probably going to be impacting your emotions as well. So I think it's really difficult to be able to separate kind of those two spaces and those two worlds, and which is why politicians really like to play in both. <laughs> they sure do, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Um, I shouldn't say that it's always, it, it, it. there have been a couple of instances, very high profile instances, where positivity actually worked. But that's because there had been so much negativity around that the positive was just a refreshing change of pace. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. of course, of the election of Barack Obama back in 2008. And to some extent, uh, Trudeau, when he came to power, he had been the subject of a number of attack ads um, and, and he waited for a response, waited for a response. And uh, then he comes back with the ads that were, here's what I'm not ready for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that there's sort of room to, to sort of play on on both sides i'll be interested to see um kind of how that emotion sort of ties with with people and sort of fear-based versus sort of positive messaging when it comes to the upcoming Ontario election. I think a lot of that has to do with um, maybe pitting sort of an us versus them mentality and that sort of thing and that um messaging and and mentality works really well when there's a lot of awareness of both of the kind of camps or just sort of perceptions of of what each side is. And so I think um, in this election, at least in Ontario, there isn't necessarily as much awareness um, of the other party leaders compared to to Ford. And so I think that that'll be an interesting um, way to see how that plays out and how emotions sort of come into play in that sort of situation instead of um, maybe the last federal election where sort of the the liberal sort of perception and the conservative perception have been sort of set in stone and um, sort of impressions of the leaders or what a leader of the Conservative Party might be um, were maybe a little bit more formed than in the Ontario election. I know Abacus, the company you work for, uh, has recently done some work regarding the Ontario voter mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we just released sort of a poll to sort of see where the mindset of, of voters are at. And so we see that um, most people kind of give uh, Ford a, a fairly neutral positive um rating on, on how he's done so far. So that's an interesting sort of number that we'll continue to track. Um, and then sort of the direction of the province where things are heading. And so Canadian, or sorry, Ontarians are kind of split right now on whether Ontario is kind of heading in the right direction or on the wrong track or a little bit unsure. So these kind of sort of surrounding impressions are things that we're, we're going to be interested in tracking. And I think go back to that point about sort of tying to emotion, whether it's positive or negative. Um, I think that those things certainly come into play as well as sort of policy positions. I was also interested uh, by the polling that was done. Uh, about 25% describe the current Ontario economy as excellent or good, and 37% feel that it's acceptable. Uh, and about 38% describe it as terrible or poor. Um, that that surprised me. 
Yeah, yeah, I think it's interesting. There's certainly we've done a lot of research on kind of the different groups um, in Canada and Ontario about where kind of people stand on sort of how their relative positioning is within cost of living, if they've sort of benefited from rising prices or definitely not. And I think there's a growing gap um, between kind of these camps. And there's sort of three sort of pools in this um, upcoming election that we're seeing where it's it's either going really well or it's going okay or it's going poor. So I'll be interested to see how these groups kind of track um, over time when it comes to sort of impressions and how they react to the different pitches that we will no doubt be receiving about policies and, and personalities in the upcoming weeks. Well, there's that famous quote about uh, what's the biggest issue? It's the economy, stupid. Not economy, yes. <laughs> stupid. It's just what the saying is. And yeah. uh, and I have a feeling that's that may be a very important factor um, in the days and weeks to come as we head for June the 2nd and the election because, you know, inflation is tracking at very mm-hmm. high levels. You know, mm-hmm. the squeeze on the pocketbook is getting bigger and bigger, in particular because of gas prices. So we were talking about a little bit earlier this morning in another interview. Um, but that probably will be one of the key factors, I would think, that will determine whether people go to the polls or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at least in our polling, uh, reducing the cost of living is, is kind of that top issue. I think healthcare is, again, kind of in that dance. But um, there are many, many news articles um, now um, about cost of living, about inflation, about um, all of these rising prices, and, and healthcare sort of taken a little bit more of a backseat. And so it'll be interesting to see kind of as the election officially kicks off how parties are, are sort of choosing to address uh, those narratives and how they try to shape uh, the conversation of the economy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One of the things that incumbent governments always love is voter apathy, because it usually means that they're going to stay in power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that, that that's a, something that we're sort of interested in looking at as well. And we can see, um, we asked uh, Ontarians who they think would make the best premier for Ontario right now. And and most people are, are choosing to go with the status quo. One in three say Doug Ford. Um, one in three say they're unsure. And then the rest are kind of mixed between the rest. But you can kind of see that there is um, not really when you're looking at who else besides Ford could become the premier, there isn't kind of a next kind of next up contender. And so I think that that's an interesting number that we'll continue to look at and, and will probably influence what ends up happening. Well, it's also interesting because some of the polls that I've seen so far, it, it seems to have, you know, there are some people who are supporting a party, but they mm-hmm. may not be supporting the leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that definitely comes into play, um, I think, as well. But I, I'm not too sure that that sort of impacts kind of overall what uh, people end up kind of doing when it comes to the voting booth, but um, kind of on all all the sort of different metrics when it comes to parties that are winning or sort of preferred premier or who they think will become the premier, we tend to see at least right now that all sort of arrows are are pointing to Ford. Um, That said, there is some desire for change, like there usually always is in elections. Um, It's lower than it was in the 2018 election, so um, still some room to grow there. But I think that's another metric that we'll continue to watch to sort of see um, if that'll shift and and if that'll indicate whether or not um, some other uh, leader and party is is a more viable alternative. Well, as we were saying off the top, it it kind of seems like uh, it's the easy thing to do to do some fear-mongering ads, and that'll get people running to the polls. And it may or may not be an issue that actually a government can do anything about, but as long as they get you out mm-hmm. to the poll and voting the way you want um, or the way they want, that seems to be the only motivating factor there because, of course, you've got to win power in order to mm-hmm. have the power. Um, yes. But is it really just a matter of advertising or, you know, what really speaks to people? Mm, I think advertising it is important, but I think sort of controlling the overall narrative in the story, I think, is really important in elections, kind of getting your tagline out there. I think every party is going to have some version of what affordability looks like or what cost of living looks like, but it's about which party can kind of get their um, brand of that messaging out there and sort of be able to drive the narrative in, in the media and drive the narrative in the minds and in conversations of Ontarians as, in the upcoming weeks. And that's really where the dance starts to come in, because every opposing party wants to knock you off your game mm-hmm. in terms of what your messaging is. Yeah, yeah, I think that's part of the messaging as well. And it's about, um, I think I always enjoy sort of the dance of whether you play sort of offense or defense with your messaging. Um, I think it can be a fine balance between um, between both of those, because you want to make sure that 
that rather than just sort of attacking the other narrative that your narrative is, is kind of coming forefront, unless of course your narrative is um, to be the other um, and to kind of run that that ad and, and that campaign. So really interested to see kind of the, the tactics um, that each of the parties will be taking in these weeks and, and kind of where they're going to place themselves on that spectrum. Now, is it a practice uh, when a party is... Uh laying out their platform, deciding what their message is going to be, how they're going to roll that message out. Um, do they plan for how they're going to be thrown off course by the opposition? Um, I mean, I'm no campaign manager expert, but I, I would <laughs> say that any good sort of party would sort of have that in place and be able to sort of um, even craft their messages with the intention that um, another party is going to either attack how they're saying it or come up with their own messaging. And so to be able to kind of make sure that they're the best, especially when it comes to those top issues that we're talking about in the election. So cost of living, healthcare, kind of post-COVID recovery, um, making sure that your lines and your sort of messaging is is there to both be at the forefront and then sort of be the best when, when people are comparing it to others. Well, based on the polling that's been done already and uh, and your basic expertise, what can we expect to see in the Ontario election? Not um, a, I think we'll, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, not necessarily outcome. <laughs> yes, I, I don't, I'm not, I was not going to jump in that far. I think we'll have to wait at least till the election officially kicks off. But I think it'll be an interesting election to see, at least for Ontarians. This is kind of, um, at least for me, kind of one of the, the first sort of post-pandemic or mid-pandemic elections. And so um, I think if you had sort of said what the narrative would be in this election maybe a year ago, you would have probably seen it's all about health care, all about long-term care, all about um, vaccine mandates, all about that kind of stuff. But I think um, even in the last couple of weeks, cost of living has really sort of risen to the forefront of issues. And so I think that we're going to see an election that's uh, much more about cost of living issues than about health care issues, um, though, uh, we're still kind of living in this pandemic, post-pandemic reality where the news changes every week. So so it could be different if we, we talk next Wednesday. <laughs> we may have to do that. Uh, one, yeah. of the things, one of the things that has really captivated my attention in observing a number of uh, elections, both in Canada, in Ontario, and in the United States as well, is that they really seem to take on a life of their own. You can do all the planning you want. You can prep for what the other side might throw at you. But there are those things that come out of the blue, either an issue that nobody had expected or a tidbit of information that nobody had expected. And it just changes the entire course of an election. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is, as you mentioned, definitely a possibility in this election. I'm going to put my cards out there and say it probably won't be about maybe a, a leader uh, of any of the particular parties, but I think um, issues are something that could sort of throw that that curveball into this election. I think, as I just mentioned, the news changes so frequently. Um, I mean, there's there's we haven't even talked about the international um, world and then how those sort of instances can have implications on um on the issues that we're talking about here at home. And so I think um, there's there's certainly time. It's going to be a shorter campaign, so less time um, for those sort of surprises to jump out. But I think um, you're right. There's there's probably going to be that moment um, in the upcoming weeks that sort of uh, shifts the narrative. But I'm, I'm willing to bet that it'll probably still be um, cost of living related just based on kind of what we're seeing so far. And all of the different factors, including those worldwide, that are going mm-hmm. to have an impact on that, as we've been hearing over the course of the morning and no doubt we'll be hearing in the days and weeks to come. Oksana, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Thank you so much, too. Have a great day. You, too. Oksana Kishchuk is Director of Strategy and Insights at Abacus Data. Maybe now is a good time for you to just take stock. What are the key issues for you? What have you heard that are actual plans and workable policies that will answer some of those questions that you have? And uh, instead of just responding to uh, what fear or uh, what political ads may come down the pike over the next days and weeks to come before we head to the polls on June the 2nd. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.